Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for this event. Uh, I want also to welcome our C-SPAN audience and uh, those of us, those who are um, <clears throat> looking uh, at the event uh, on Cato live streaming and later through the archives. We're here to discuss uh, religious liberty as it may or may not uh, be exercised in the context of the modern business corporation pursuant to both statutory and constitutional law. More immediately, we're here also to mark the publication of a new book on that subject from Paul Grave Pivot, Religious Liberties for Corporations, and I note the title ends with a question mark. In the book, our two main speakers today, Ilya Shapiro and David Gans, uh, provide a comprehensive analysis of the issues in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, the blockbuster decision the Supreme Court handed down at the end of its last term, which rejected the Obamacare regulation that provided employer-sponsored health care plans to provide, uh, which required employer-sponsored health care plans to provide free contraceptive coverage. The book is based on a series of debates between Ilya and David that took place earlier this year at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, moderated by Center President Jeffrey Rosen. In those debates and in this book, our opposing advocates examine whether for-profit corporations can assert religious uh, liberty uh, exercise claims under federal law, whether businesses or their owners, directors, or officers with religious objections should be exempt from coverage requirements, and what the implications are now that the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of Hobby Lobby. More fundamentally still is a question that I hope they'll address along the way, namely whether uh, the, the uh, government, whether religious liberty has become an exception um, to a government rule needing to be justified case by case, or whether instead under a properly read constitution, it is government rule that has to be justified. To debate these issues, our two speakers will have 12 minutes each, starting with Ilya, uh, after which they'll take three minutes each to respond. We'll then turn to Professor Randy Barnett for a 15-minute commentary before we turn to you, our audience, for questions. So let me now introduce our two main speakers, and I'll give them very brief introductions. Um, and I'll introduce Randy just before he speaks. Ilya is a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He contributes to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications and regularly provides media commentary, including an appearance on the Colbert Report. He's provided testimony to Congress and state legislatures and has filed more than 100 uh, Friend of the Court briefs in the Supreme Court. Before joining Cato, uh, Ilya was Special Assistant Advisor to the Multinational Force in Iraq and litigated uh, at two large law firms. David Gans is the Director of the Human Rights, Civil Rights, and Citizenship Program at the Constitutional Accountability Center. He's the author of numerous scholarly works on Constitution's text and history, including the Center's Text and History Narrative series. 
He regularly participates in Supreme Court litigation. He joined the center after serving as program director of the Cardoza Law School's Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy, and as an attorney with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. So we will begin with, uh, uh, with Ilya Shapiro. Uh, please welcome him. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for everyone for coming and those of you in, in C-SPAN land uh, for watching. I hope you're enjoying your insomnia at 3 in the morning. <laughs> so by now, everyone here has, has heard uh, that the uh, Supreme Court ruled that corporations can fire women who use birth control and that religion trumps all other values in constitutional discourse. Uh, at least that's what my Twitter feed told me uh, when the Supreme Court decision in Burwell the Hobby Lobby came down. Actually, what was at stake at the with the case had nothing to do with the power of big business, the freedom to use any kind of contraceptive, uh, or how to balance religious liberty against other constitutional concerns. Hobby Lobby was actually a straightforward question of statutory interpretation regarding whether the government was justified in this particular case in overriding religious liberties. The Supreme Court ruled, as Roger said, uh, that closely held corporations can't be forced to pay for all of their employees' contraceptives if doing so would violate their religious beliefs. So there was no constitutional decision, no expansion of corporate rights, and no weighing of religion versus the right to use birth control. But let's unpack that. Let's, let's step back for a second. So Department of Health and Human Services included 20 contraceptives at, as part of its minimum essential coverage that all insurance plans had to uh, have to satisfy the Obamacare employer mandate. Um, through interpreting that requirement from the legislation, all that the legislation said was you have to cover preventative care. And in the course of interpreting that, they uh, listed 20 contraceptives. Included among those were four to which uh, certain religious uh, employers or, or, or people who ran businesses uh, both for-profit and non-profit around the country objected. These tended to be uh, uh, pills and, and other devices, uh, IUDs, morning-after pills, um, that, uh, that work in part by preventing fertilized eggs from, from implanting. And uh, people uh, object to this on religious grounds, uh, including David and Barbara Green, the founders and uh, owners of the Arts and Crafts Emporium Hobby Lobby. I've actually never been to uh, a hobby lobby, but they uh, they consider it part of their Christian duties to provide good health care to their employees, uh, but they also object uh, to these uh, various these four items on the list of twenty. Um, but not complying with the mandate would have meant one point three million dollars in daily fines. So the greens, uh, both on their own behalf and through their corporate uh, uh, entity hobby lobby, sued the government, both under the First Amendment. Uh, but more importantly, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Now, RIFRA, it's a curious statute. It calls for kind of narrow case-by-case -case adjudication uh, of religious objections to uh, government actions. It was passed unanimously in the House in 97 to 3 in the Senate uh, and signed by President Clinton in 93. Uh, its lead sponsors included such right-wing religious zealots as Chuck Schumer, then in the House, and Ted Kennedy in the Senate. 
And uh, these religious zealots' intent was to reverse a 1990 Supreme Court ruling by that heretical secular humanist Justice Antonin Scalia uh, that approved the constitutionality of generally applicable laws that burden religion so long as that they didn't specifically intend to discriminate against uh, religious people. That is, if objectors wanted an exemption, they would have to seek it from the legislature, not from the courts. Now, when someone makes a RIFRA claim, courts are supposed to look at, first, whether the government action at issue uh, actually imposes a significant burden on religious exercise. If it does, then the government must show that it nevertheless is pursuing a compelling interest and is using the least restrictive means of achieving that interest. The burden here is clear. The government didn't even contest that there was a substantial burden on, uh, on the Greens, on Hobby Lobby. Uh, the court ultimately assumed that the government's asserted interest was compelling. And by the way, the way that the federal government litigated this case was curious. It didn't say that there was a compelling interest in uh, free contraceptives or something like that. They, they, all they said was public health and gender equality, very kind of broad uh, interests that generally uh, are held to be too vague when you're trying to satisfy what's effectively a strict scrutiny uh, by the courts. Uh, and indeed, some lower courts ruled against the government on that basis, that their asserted interest wasn't compelling because too vague. It's kind of like saying, our interest is in good public policy. Nevertheless, the Supreme Court just assumed that that interest was compelling, and so the case came down to that third bit, whether uh, this was the contraceptive mandate was the least restrictive means of achieving the government's goal. Uh, and that's where the government lost, because it simply did not show, could not show, that there was no way to provide free or cheap birth control without burdening believers. For example, the government could pay for the contraceptives uh, itself, or provide tax credits, uh, or make the kind of regulatory accommodations that it offered to nonprofit organizations, some of which are still litigating some of these accommodations. But again, none of these sorts of things were offered to the for-profit businesses. Uh, some of these religious groups, by the way, some of the nonprofits, uh, one of them is called Little Sisters of the Poor. Any of you who are plaintiff's lawyers or, or budding plaintiff's lawyers, I suggest you get them to be your lead plaintiff in any case you file on any subject. Um, so instead, the Health and Human Services just chose to continue forcing people to do its bidding. Uh, and the court said, you know, you don't have to do that. You can achieve your goal in some other way. So nobody's been denied access to contraceptives. Everyone uh, who's, uh, you know, you, women can still uh, uh, buy, acquire uh, whatever legal products they could uh, before. Uh, and there's now more freedom for all Americans to live their lives how they want without checking their conscience uh, at the office door. Instead, this was just a mandate um, that was a, a rights-busting government compulsion that didn't have sufficient justification. Now, before I sit down and, and end this explanation of a rather simple case, I guess I should address uh, the hubbub uh, about corporate rights. After all, the title of our book and of our event today is Religious Liberties for Corporations, which I really think is an academic exercise regarding you know, how many mandates can dance on the head of a beleaguered citizen. Because uh, after all, uh, as Cato's brief uh, described, it doesn't really matter whether you lawyer up your argument, your claim in terms of the corporation asserting it or the, the founders, the owners, 
um, at least in a closely held corporation, certainly, and I guess you could theoretically conceive of a public, publicly held corporation as well, where the interests are all aligned. Uh, it's the people whose beliefs uh, that are being uh, impinged, or the, whose, out of whose pocketbook ultimately the fine would be paid. So I think it, it really doesn't matter. Now, specifically uh, on, the, on the legal merits of RIFRA, RIFRA itself technically applies to all persons. Uh, which is a legal term that, unless Congress specifies otherwise, includes non-human entities. Um, but a for-profit corporation can't really exercise religion, can it? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to apply. It's kind of like applying the term person to a statute about uh, you know, abortion or the death penalty or something like this. It just It's nonsensical. Well, it's certainly true that Hobby Lobby uh, doesn't pray or have a soul to save. It doesn't even have knees to pray on, right? Uh, but it's hard to say it doesn't operate according to certain religious ideals. It closes on Sundays. It doesn't sell shot glasses. It takes out ads uh, uh, in, in importuning readers to seek Jesus. Uh, it refuses to backhaul beer on its trucks. Well, some, one way that uh, uh, retailers make a lot of profits is uh, when they, their trucks go out with their merchandise, uh, when they come back, they're empty. But rather than having them empty, they'll haul other stuff, including... Uh, most lucratively, uh, beer. Uh, but Hobby Lobby does not do that, uh, foregoing considerable profits. Um, but really, neither the profit motive nor the business structure change anything, because modern law, uniformly around the country in every state, lets corporations pursue any lawful purpose. They don't just have to pursue the bottom line. Uh, indeed, corporate social responsibility is a, is a, uh, a trendy, well, it's been trendy for 10 or 15 years or, or, or more. Um, Starbucks, uh, you know, has fair trade coffee, and Chipotle and Whole Foods care about the sourcing of their organic free-range meat, and Google says don't be evil. Uh, lots of organizations, lots of business organizations have all sorts of uh, ethical systems uh, according to which they pursue uh, their mission, and there's, there's nothing really uh, unusual about that, and I don't think uh, that ethical system being religious uh, means that it's subject to less protection. None of these considerations undermine RIFRA's solicitude for the rights of humans, including owners, officers, and shareholders. As Justice Alito said uh, for the majority here, protecting the free exercise rights of corporations protects the religious liberty of the humans who own and control these companies. Indeed, associational rights flow from the individuals, um, from the individual rights of the people who make up the groups to which we attribute those rights, be those groups corporations, partnerships, unions, fraternal organizations, political advocacy groups, a bunch of buddies playing poker. Um, this is not a controversial statement. It didn't, didn't even start with uh, Citizens United, uh, right, which uh, uh, freed up independent political speech for all sorts of associations, including corporations uh, and unions. For a long, long time, we have understood that corporations and other associational groups uh, have rights. If they didn't, then the police could storm the offices of IBM and take all their computers because there's no Fourth Amendment right there. If, uh, or uh, the mayor of New York could say he really likes Rockefeller Center and wants to move his office there and can just take it without paying just compensation in violation of the Fifth Amendment. So corporate structure uh, really doesn't matter. It seems kind of odd to say that you know, as an LLC or a partnership or however other way you can pursue a profit, uh, it's okay. Uh, but once you incorporate, for some reason, there's a magical switch where you lose your, your certain rights. Nor does profit motive matter. Of course, we have Jewish and Muslim butchers who pursue their for, you know, profit motive uh, uh, 
with, uh, according to religious beliefs. Indeed, one of the co-plaintiffs of Hobby Lobby was a Christian bookstore. They're in it to make a buck, Mardell Books is, but they're selling exclusively Christian uh, literature. So let's put this corporations aren't people misdirection to rest. At least for closely held companies, if you pierce their corporate veils, it's their owners who will bleed. Um, I share the, the practical skepticism that a publicly traded company, a Fortune 500 company, say, could align all of its stakeholders' beliefs to assert a RIFRA claim. But in theory, it's possible. If Hobby Lobby went public tomorrow, and in all of its SEC prospectuses and investor uh, memoranda and so forth, it laid out clearly how it pursued its business, wasn't uh, defrauding anyone, I don't suppose there would be anything wrong with that. Um, here, you know, the First Amendment protects free speech, free exercise, not certain speakers here in the, in the Citizens United context, uh, and people don't lose their rights, uh, First Amendment, RIFRA, or otherwise, when they get together. But the larger conclusion to draw here, and this is getting to what uh, Roger uh, uh, said he was hopeful that we get to, is that the essence of freedom is that government can't willy-nilly force people to do things that violate their consciences. Now, some may argue that there's a conflict here between religious freedom and women's freedom or women's rights, but that's a false choice, as the president likes to say. Um, without this rule, again, women are still free to obtain contraceptives, abortions, and whatever else isn't illegal. They just can't force their employer to pay for it. And you know, if Hobby Lobby's employees were all of a sudden not having access to contraceptives, I think we would have heard about it by now. Moreover, while the focus of the contraceptive mandate cases is the intersection of corporate rights and religious liberties, there's a bigger issue here. This is just the latest example of the difficulties inherent in turning healthcare, or increasingly our economy more broadly, over to the government. When something is socialized or treated as a public utility, we're forced to fight for every carve out of liberty, as Roger himself has, has written during this debate. The more government controls, whether healthcare, education, or even marriage, the greater the battles over conflicting values. I call this process hobby lobbyfication, and I'll be writing about it more in, in coming months. With certain things, such as national defense or basic infrastructure and other real public goods, we largely agree, at least inside uh, reasonable margins. But we have vast disagreements about social programs, economic regulation, and so much else that government now dominates at the expense of individual liberty. So those who supported Hobby Lobby before the court uh, are rightly concerned that people are being forced uh, to do what their religious beliefs prohibit. But that all comes with the collectivized territory. Thanks. Thanks so much, and thank you for, uh, for Cato for putting on this fabulous event. And it's really a pleasure to be you know, sharing the stage with uh, Ilya, with Randy Barnett, with Roger, who uh, uh, sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree, but we always kind of start from first principles and look at the Constitution's text and history. So Ilya sort of told a story that Hobby Lobby was, you know, applying a statute, uh, using case-by-case -case adjudication. I sort of want to start with saying this is a big deal. This case marks the first time in the nation's history that the Supreme Court has given secular for-profit uh, corporations religious free exercise rights and, and the and is quite important, accorded them religious exemptions from general business regulations. Now, it's rare uh, when you're talking about the Supreme Court to say, this is the first time something has happened that the Supreme Court has said. Uh, you, you can do it. You can look at, at uh, 
instances in the recent past, like uh, like Heller, the the gun case. But it's very rare to say this is the first time the Supreme Court has has said corporations have this right in in more than two hundred years um, of our nation's history. But Hobby Lobby is is big news because it does say for the first time on our nation's history, uh, secular for-profit corporations are entitled to religious uh, free exercise rights and are entitled to seek exemptions um, from general business laws. And it's now kind of opened the door to new claims for uh, religious exemptions. And there's no, and as Zilia said, it's kind of a case-by-case -case method. There's no real concrete limiting principle in place that can say, well, these people don't get exemptions, but these people do. Um, and this really make, marks a huge shift from the prior free exercise law that has existed any time in the last 200 years. And I guess one of the things is we have to see what's going to happen. Will the court give uh, businesses religious exemptions from anti-discrimination laws as well? You know, I don't think the court's opinion really answers that question. Uh, it says perhaps they won't be giving them in the race context, but uh, gender, sexual orientation, those are all kind of up for grabs, and so time will tell. Uh, and to me, there, there's kind of three big things that are going on uh, in Hobby Lobby. I want to focus on those, and then I'll, I'll sort of turn to, uh, uh, to RIFRA, because at the end of the day, it's a RIFRA case, and I want to address uh, Ilya's arguments about RIFRA. So what are the things that are going on? So first, you know, as I started with, this is a, a major expansion in the rights of corporations. And you know, Ilya sort of has backpedaled a little bit, but at the end of the day, for the first time in history, the court has uh, extended religious free exercise rights to secular for-profit corporations. That's a right that has never been accorded to them uh, in over two centuries. So that's, that is a big deal. And I think, too, and what's really important is the kind of exemption they've been uh, accorded. And it exalts the powers of corporations over their employees. And it allows corporate CEOs to impose their religious beliefs on their employees and to deny them federal rights. Uh, and that's a very troubling kind of exemption. And I think that's really... Uh, a, a very big part of, of the Hobby Lobby story and, uh, and why uh, myself and others think the court is, is going in the wrong direction. Um, <clears throat> you know, so let me, let me try and say a little bit about each of those and then, uh, uh, and then maybe I'll, and then I'll try and address Ilya's point. So uh, although Hobby Lobby is a statutory case, you know, this book is about addressing the larger issues as well. So I want to start with uh, the text and history of the Constitution. And I, you know, I think what we're seeing in Hobby Lobby and, and perhaps other constitutional cases, like Citizens United that Ilya mentioned, is the Roberts Court taking us further and further away from really basic founding understandings about the rights of corporations. Uh, when, when the Constitution was founded, it was very clear to the founding generation uh, that corporations were not a part of the we the people, and giving them equal rights would be harmful to the American people. Uh, during debates over the Bill of Rights, James Madison talked about extending to individual Americans the great rights of mankind. But when it came to even mentioning corporations in the Constitution, the framers were extremely worried about doing so. so there was a big debate at the founding over, should we give the federal government the power to create a corporation? Um, and the framers said, no, we don't want to create that power. And they were worried about. Uh, making uh, corporations uh, artificial entities, not uh, at their core, into hugely powerful uh, entities. And they specifically declined to mention corporations in the Constitution. Now, we have since then 
you know, 200 years of, of precedent that have wrestled with how do we treat corporations, uh, given the fact that individuals come together and they form corporations to, um, most of the time, not all the time, to be profitable in the business world. And we give them special privileges to make them extremely useful at that. So they, they have some rights, and most of those rights are connected to commerce and property, but they don't have all the rights. Uh, so notably, and, and the book discusses this at length, one of the areas the Supreme Court has said, corporations don't have the same rights as individuals, um, not, notwithstanding what Ilya has said about that corporations are, uh, are owned and run by individuals, they don't have the rights uh, to, self to be protected against self-incrimination. And I think what the court recognized in, the, in those cases is uh, that right is essentially a right about conscience and about human dignity, uh, and it would be improper to extend that to, 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 uh, to, to corporations. And I think the same thing is, is true uh, when we talk about religious liberty. When you... You know, when I started this, and I looked back at, at what did the framers say about religious liberty. And the founding generation understood it as a fundamental human right that was rooted in freedom of conscience and human dignity. These really human characteristics, and if you look at Madison's iconic writings uh, in, in Virginia, what he talked about over and over was reason, was conscience, was conviction. Um, these don't make... These, these make little sense as applied uh, to, to secular for-profit corporations like Hobby Lobby, who, who can't pray and, and don't exercise a religious conscience in any meaningful sense of the word. Now, of course, Hobby Lobby's owners have deeply held religious beliefs. I think everyone recognizes that. But there's a fundamental difference between the owners and the corporation. And the whole part, the whole point of forming the corporation is to transform a set of, of individuals into a, a different entity with different rights responsibilities and obligations. And, and what I find uh, troubling and, and, and sort of wrong about the ruling in Hobby Lobby is it allows corporations like Hobby Lobby to have their cake and eat it too, to claim special privileges such as limited liability. So when the owner's sued, when, when, uh, when they're sued, the owners say, well, we're not on the hook. We're protected. Uh, but here, when, when it deals with a claim that uh, the corporation must spend money, they say, oh, no, it, no, that's us. That's not the corporation. So, you know, corporations shouldn't be able to go back and forth uh, corporate and individual status to gain the benefits of both. Um, you know, what's most significant, uh, I think, about this ruling is um, maybe less the formal question of uh, can a corporation uh, invoke religious freedom but the question of according them religious exemptions. Uh, and what's really significant here is the court has uh, done something that the Supreme Court has never done in the past. And you can look, at, you can look back uh, throughout American history, and you, the book starts with claims made by Jewish, Jewish merchants, which started in the early 19th century. It didn't reach the court until the 1960s in the Braunfield case. Uh, there was a case in the 1980s involving the Amish. There was also kind of a fundamental precedent about the meaning of the, the free exercise clause. In all those cases, we have uh, businesses not unlike the Greens who said, we want to run this religion according to our, our basic faiths. And the court in, in, in all those cases, in fact, every case that came before it, the court said, you're not entitled to a religious exemption. Uh, and you know, sort of case after case throughout American history, even when you're dealing with business owners, uh, not corporations. Um, the court said, you're not entitled to religious exemption. Now, Hobby Lobby kind of 
really opens the door to a new set of claims for, for religious exemptions. And what's most troubling is uh, it exalts the rights of the corporations over those employees. Um, and it gives, it, it gives the, uh, the owners the right to impose their religious beliefs on their employees and deny them federal rights. And in this case, uh, it's the right to insurance coverage that includes contraceptive coverage. Uh, and without this coverage, employees who have deeply held convictions of their own won't be able to afford some of the most effective forms of contraception. Um, and this really, to me, this really turns religious liberty on its head, and it gives employers a tremendous power over employees. Employees shouldn't have to check their personal liberty and human dignity uh, when they, when they uh, at the workplace door. Now, Ilya's sort of focused a lot on, on RIFRA, and I just want to sort of end, and I know my time is running short, by, by noting uh, RIFRA was, was a decision that, as Ilya said, overturned a Supreme Court ruling that said there will the law does never never requires religious accommodations. The history before that was the, the court said, sometimes the First Amendment requires a religious exemption. But most of the time, the court rejected claims for religious exemptions. And they rejected claims um, for religious exemptions brought by business owners. And uh, to me, the case that was most relevant and that should have been followed was the case involving the Amish. The Amish and the Amish business owner asked for a religious exemption for making social security payments. And the court said, you're not entitled to that exemption uh, because doing so would, would impose your religious beliefs on your employees. And I think Ginsburg and the dissenters were right that that was the, the, the precedent that was most on point and should have been followed. And if the court had respected that, uh, they would have upheld it under uh, the standard that, that, that's applied in there. OK. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll you can add it to your <laughs> model if you'd like. Okay, Ilya, three minutes. Sure. And, uh, and David gets four when he sure. comes back. David's real problem here is with RIFRA. Uh, not just David, anyone who, who doesn't like the result in Hobby Lobby. Um, because RIFRA's standard is quite clear. Is there a substantial burden to a sincerely held religious belief? So kind of pretextual ones that are made up for the course of litigation, like people who, when they're arrested for marijuana distribution, claim to be part of the Church of Marijuana and things like that. You know, those cases have failed. Um, whether there's a compelling interest and whether there's any other means to achieve it. You know? If that's not the right way to balance uh, uh, religious objections to generally applicable laws, then RIFRA should be changed or abolished. Um, you know, the, Senator Patty Murray, I think, was the lead sponsor of the Get Your Boss Out of My Business Act um, that didn't go anywhere. But that's, you know, that's, uh, that's the way that RIFRA uh, works. Or David's problem, perhaps, is with Obamacare itself or with the way that uh, the Department of Health and Human Services interpreted it in requiring this mandate, or in the way that the Department of Justice acted in not extending certain accommodations to uh, for-profit businesses uh, that, that, that objected, but only certain kind of nonprofits. At each of those stages, the writing of Obamacare, its implementation uh, in terms of its regulations, and the accommodations given by the Justice Department, each of those steps the government could have made this case go away. But no, 
more important than providing uh, uh, employees or women generally with free contraceptives or gender equality or whatever the asserted is, more important than all that is forcing people to bend to the will of uh, what the government dictates is the correct view of things. That's the real problem here. Is there a limiting principle? Sure. If there's no substantial burden, it's case by case. If there's no substantial burden, you lose. If the government has a compelling interest that, that there's no other way to achieve it, you lose. Like anti-discrimination laws. Now, assuming anti-discrimination laws as applied to private businesses are constitutional in the first place, we'll cabin that question. We at Cato, of course, uh, have some qualms uh, about that. But assuming they're constitutional, there is no other way of achieving the goal, the compelling interest, of not having private employers discriminate against people based on XYZ category than to say you can't discriminate. So a challenge on religious grounds has to fail. Social security payments. There is no other way for the government to achieve its goal of everyone paying for each other's uh, retirement in a sort of Ponzi scheme manner than to actually take the money from the different people. Um, you know, you can't provide a public clinic because you know, it's a different thing. This is a different uh, issue that we're talking about with the contraceptive mandate. Uh, and so ultimately, again, the issue of corporate rights, by the way, is a very small one, and the court didn't take much time on it. The vote on that was five to two, just as uh, Kagan and, and Breyer didn't even feel the need to opine on it one way or another. Uh, and the reason why uh, a corporate right was found to be in this way uh, at this time was because it's the HHS mandate that's so rare and unprecedented to force people to bend uh, their religious beliefs to the will of the government for no particular reason. Thanks. So, so Ilya says that my problem is RIFRA, and that I just I can't accept RIFRA. But you know, I think what Ilya misses and what the court distorted was what RIFRA was all about. It was about creating a balance um, between uh, the right of, of individuals to seek religious exemptions and statutes uh, passed, neutrally, generally applicable statutes that are passed to the religious and the non-religious alike. And, and the law prior to RIFRA was only a very small number of, of claims for religious exemptions uh, were mandated. And what the court has done quite consciously is to create a new body of First Amendment law that has no roots uh, really in any law that has existed since our nation was founded. You know, Ilya has sort of said, well, the government's interests here were so vague. They weren't vague. They were about ensuring that women uh, cannot have access to the full range of contraceptives. So one of the, the most effective and most expensive forms of contraception, the IUD, is the one that Hobby Lobby said, we don't want to pay for. And that means if you're a hardworking woman and you depend on insurance to ensure that you have access to the full range of contraceptives, you won't, you won't be able to, to achieve it. You won't be able to, to possess those, obtain those contraceptives and control your lives. And this is the way in which the exemption that they've granted allows the owners of Hobby Lobby to impose on their individual employees uh, their religious beliefs. And if you, look at, if you look and take seriously the body of law that RIFRA was designed to restore as its text uh, makes plain, uh, that kind of exemption wasn't proper. Now, you can look at it, you know, was this narrowly tailored? Ilya sort of say, well, the government can pay. But by that solution, the Amish, should, the Amish owners should have won. The, 
you could say, well, the government can just make up any Social Security payments. You know, that, that solution kind of destroys the balance that, uh, that is supported by two centuries of law dealing with uh, the First Amendment. And so I think the court has really kind of gone off the rails in how it's, how it's construed uh, RIFRA that, that breaks from, from founding understandings and, and sort of two centuries of, of, of First Amendment law. Uh, you know, and in terms of, well, what about extending the accommodation? Of course, Ilya mentions the Little Sisters of the Poor who are very actively challenging the accommodation. So the accommodation that the court says, well, they could do this, is now uh, under attack. And the justices didn't say, uh, you know, we don't think those challenges will succeed. Um, in fact, they were clear to leave them open. And the day after, in the, the Wheaton College order, they made it sound like, well, those those claims seem like they're they're pretty good ones. So the basis of this narrower accommodation by giving, uh, giving, corporate, giving businesses rights that, that have long been given to, uh, to churches, uh, you know, uh, I don't think that really works when you haven't even accepted the legality of that accommodation. Um, so I think if the court had applied RIFRA uh, against the backdrop of the law that it was designed to restore, it would have re recognized that this was an accommodation that shouldn't have been granted because, because it's uh, in derogation of the rights of the employees. And I think the four justices got it right when they, uh, when they made that point in, in what was, a, I think, a brilliant dissent by Justice Ginsburg. Thank you. All right, now we're going to hear a roughly 15-minute uh, response from Professor Randy Barnett when I said that uh, I would give our um, uh, speakers a brief introduction I had Randy in mind. I want to leave time for his talk um, because I could go on at great length with his introduction. He is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center uh, where he directs the Georgetown Center for the Constitution and teaches constitutional law and contracts. He's the author of many books and countless art legal articles uh, among his books are Restoring the Lost Constitution, The Presumption of Liberty, uh, which plays into the question that I last posed uh, in my introductory remarks. Uh, also, uh, Constitutional Law, Cases in Context, which treats the Constitution historically, unlike most con law case books, and Contracts, Cases, and Doctrine. Most important for our purposes here today, Randy took the lead in crafting the legal challenges that brought Obamacare before the Supreme Court in 2012. Please uh, welcome Randy Barnett. Well, it's great to be back at the Hayek Auditorium and the Cato Institute with all my friends. I should probably disclose at the outset that I agree with Ilya entirely uh, here in this debate. Uh, but I don't think that my role today is to pile on and uh, to make this a two-on-one debate, uh, the way, for example, Harvard Law School did when they invited me to debate both Charles Freed and Larry Tribe <laughs> on the constitutionality of the individual insurance mandate. That's what Harvard thought was a fair fight. Uh, maybe they were right about that. I'm not sure. Um, I think it takes at least six Harvard Law professors to take you on, you Randy. But I should also disclose uh, that I'm a big fan of David's and what the Constitutional Accountability Center is trying to do, which is offer text and history on behalf of a progressive, progressive constitutional outcomes. Indeed, the CIC, CAC filed an amicus brief 
on behalf of me and several other constitutional law scholars in the McDonald case, contending that the individual right to keep and bear arms was protected by state, from state infringement by the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. So we've, we've worked together. However, um, before I offer some observations that I hope will be clarifying to the debate, I want to briefly stress that I not only agree with Ilya's conclusions, but also with the particular justifications that he offers for them. The right, uh, to freely, uh, the right to freely exercise one's religion is a natural right possessed by individuals, and the free exercise of religion involves conduct, not just belief. Republican governments are established to secure the pre-existing rights of individuals, including this one. Individuals do not lose their rights when they join together to act collectively or to make a profit. Uh, nothing compels states to enact general corporation statutes that enable individuals to limit their liability in various ways. But governments that do this cannot justly deprive these individuals of their sovereign rights because they've chosen to use the corporate form to associate or because they associate in hopes of making a profit. Now, of course, whether or not persons who control the corporations are in fact exercising their right to practice their religion is, in, is a question that must be resolved before you can reach a conclusion about a particular legal regulation, whether a particular legal regulation is restricting that right. It is hard to see how managements of Walmart or Apple are engaged in the free exercise of religion in the way that the management of Hobby Lobby is. And I also agree that the, RIF, that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act makes the case a pretty easy one on statutory grounds. But instead of further, further arguing on behalf of these conclusions, I want to pull back from this particular dispute to make some general observations about why we're having this argument. Had Congress been held to the original meaning of the Constitution, the Affordable Care Act would have been unconstitutional because it exceeded Congress's enumerated power under the original meaning of the Commerce Clause, even when combined uh, with the original meaning of the Necessary and Proper Clause. So if the original meaning of the Constitution were being followed, there would be no need to reach the First Amendment free exercise claim. And this was true as well in the, Lopez, uh, the case of Lopez versus United States. Because the court held that Congress had exceeded its enumerated powers under the Commerce Clause, when it enacted a ban that, uh, on possessing guns within 1,000 feet of a school, it was unnecessary in that case to consider whether a ban might also violate an individual right to keep and bear arms. And Lopez was decided, you may recall, before the Supreme Court in Heller had recognized that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right. What this shows is how the enumerated powers scheme is a way to protect the natural background rights and liberties of the people without having to identify and specially protect these rights, per se. And the Hobby Lobby case illustrates that once the enumerated powers scheme is breached, the court must then confront the individual rights issue under the due process clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. And in my view, it is the due process clauses that authorize courts to assess whether a particular deprivation of life, liberty, or property violates a right that was enumerated in the Bill of Rights or one of the unenumerated background rights, privileges, or immunities that are retained by the people. While the First Amendment enumerates the rights of speech, press, assembly, and the right to freely exercise one's religion, it is the due process clauses that recognize the role of courts in protecting these rights by infringement, by, uh, from infringement by Congress or by state legislatures. So every 
First Amendment claim is also, in fact, in my view, a due process clause claim. In short, given the end or the, the refusal to acknowledge the enumerated powers of Congress, we are living in a constitutional world of second best, in which we fall back on due process clause analysis of fundamental rights, because the first line of defending the inherent rights of the people, that is, the structural constraints of the Constitution, has already been breached. In this way, we can view the structural constraints of the Constitution, including the fact that the powers of Congress are supposed to be limited to those that are enumerated in the Constitution, as functioning like the structure of a ship that is, that is designed to keep the vessel afloat and preserve the life, liberty, or property of the passengers. And the rights that are protected by the due process clauses are like the lifeboats on the ship to which you repair to preserve one's life, liberty, or property when the structure of the ship itself has been breached. At the time of the founding, and despite the assurances of the framers, the public refused to get on board the constitutional ship until the framers promised to install the lifeboats by adding constitutional amendments expressly protecting the rights retained by the people. So my first point here is that we would not be discussing the First Amendment rights of the people um, who have chosen to uh, organize and associate in the corporate form were the original meaning of the whole Constitution currently being respected by Congress and by the Supreme Court. We are in a world of second best. We are staying afloat as a free society, in part, by relying on the lifeboats that have been provided by the Bill of Rights. Now, my second general point is that in this constitutional world of second best, in which the powers of Congress are thought to be so broad as to be nearly, though not quite, unlimited, the court has been forced to devise carve-outs or exceptions to these general powers. There are, for example, carve-outs for individuals in the form of so-called fundamental rights under the Due Process Clause. There are carve-outs for groups who are deemed to be suspect classes deserving of enhanced protections under the Equal Protection Clause. And carve-outs for state governments under the general heading, though not the original meaning of the 10th Amendment and the 11th Amendment. These special carve-outs or external constraints on the powers of Congress may or may not be in any given case directly supported by the original meaning of those clauses that, on which these carve-outs are supposed to be based. But current Supreme Court doctrine under the rubric of these clauses has been devised precisely to compensate for the fundamental mistake of overriding the internal limits on Congress's enumerated powers. That is, by internal limits, I mean the scope of the power itself, rather than worrying about whether they also violate rights. So these carve-outs do bring us closer to the results that would be reached by the original meaning of the Constitution as a whole that would occur in their absence. And that is what I mean by the fact that we are living in a world of second best, a constitutional world of second best. Now, this way of framing the issue does not resolve the debate over whether for-profit corporations have free exercise rights. But it does explain why what looks like historical special rights or ahistorical special rights or carve-outs are simply the second best means by which the life, liberty, or property of all persons are protected from regulations that would otherwise be protected by holding Congress to its limited and enumerated powers. So with this in mind, we can see the limitations of employing the original meaning of the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, or the Free Exercise of Religion in a constitutional regime that does not also hew to the original meaning of commerce among the several states. 
combining an ahistorical broad construction of, life, of, of federal power with a narrow and precise original meaning of the protections of life, liberty, and property can yield a result that is far removed from how the Constitution is supposed to operate to protect the rights, privileges, or immunities of the sovereign people considered as individuals. Now, before concluding, I want to offer another distinction that may help clarify the debate between David and Ilya. The meaning of the text of the Constitution is one thing. How that meaning is to be given legal effect by the courts is another. So-called new originalists, I consider myself one, call the activity of ascertaining the meaning of the text of the Constitution constitutional interpretation. When you're trying to figure out what the constitutional means, you're, in, means you're engaged in interpretation. And then they call the activity of giving that meaning legal effect constitutional construction. When it comes to constitutional interpretation then, originalists think that the meaning of the Constitution remains the same, or should remain the same, until it's properly changed by an Article V amendment. The meaning of the Constitution should remain the same until it's properly changed. And in this proposition, I think both David and Ilya agree. At least this is the proposition to which the Constitutional Accountability Center has committed itself. But when it comes to giving the, giving the original meaning of the text legal effect by adopting constitutional constructions, we are no longer engaged in the enterprise of ascertaining the meaning of the text. We are attempting to devise implementing doctrines that do not violate either the letter or the spirit of the text, but which apply that meaning to particular facts and circumstances of particular statutory restrictions with uh, interferences uh, with life, liberty, and property. I offer this distinction because I think it helps us understand that when we try to answer questions like, for example, whether corporations themselves have free exercise rights or whether these rights are better thought of as being held by the individuals who have chosen to organize themselves in the corporate form, or the question of um, even whether Smith or Sherbert, for example, which they talk about in, their book, in the book, were the most faithful to the original meaning of the text, we are trying to devise judicially administrable doctrines, we call them implementing rules, that are the most faithful to the letter and spirit of the Constitution. We're not really engaged in constitutional interpretation proper. In a great many instances, such questions of application or implementation are not matters that are capable of being resolved directly by the original meaning of the text. Instead, we are trying to figure out how this original meaning is best given legal effect. Such doctrines are likely to evolve over time, even as the original meaning of the Constitution remains fixed, as courts encounter new situations that are not clearly resolved or best resolved by previous doctrines. In this way, constitutional construction takes on attributes of a common law process that can be described as a living Constitution, but is more accurately conceived of as living constitutional law. It's the law that evolves, not the Constitution itself. So let me, let me now conclude by saying something that perhaps I should have said at the start. David and Ilya's little book, I hold it up here, is simply marvelous. I don't think I've ever read a clear exposition of a difficult constitutional and statutory controversy in a manner that renders it so understandable to non-lawyers and yet be entirely legally accurate and precise. This is a real tribute to both of these advocates each of whom made absolutely the best case for his own position, and you just got a taste of it this morning, without ever stooping 
to distort the arguments of his opponent. I must admit to being slightly in awe of both of your performances here in this book, and I am not known to offer such praise lightly. The Constitution Accountability Center and the Cato Institute should be both should both be proud, should be both proud and grateful to have such bright, skillful, and principled lawyers working for them. And it is also a tribute to Jeff Rosen and the National Constitution Center of Philadelphia for presenting so nuanced and serious a legal argument in a manner that can be appreciated by the educated public, uh, ed educated general public. This book bodes very well for his tenure as head of that important institution. So if you have any interest in the issues raised by the Hobby Lobby case, I'm, I'm talking to you out there, and the decision, I cannot more strongly recommend this book to you. Buy it, read it, or forever hold your peace. Thanks. Well, thank you, Randy. And let me just pick up on those last remarks. You've had just a taste of the debate here today, you'll get a much richer uh, discussion in this book. So get it. Um, let me, um, before we open the audience for questions from the audience, let me um, uh, offer David a chance to um, respond to what I take to be the gravamen of uh, Randy's uh, argument, namely the, the difficulty you had in finding, David, uh, precedents uh, for the reason you found this so novel, what the Supreme Court did, is that, in effect, it really didn't come up before. I mean, the government, for most of our history, wasn't issuing um, statutes like Obamacare that raised the question of ordering people to uh, perform acts that violated their religious convictions. And so that may be the main reason you were able to, unable to come up with more uh, precedence for this kind of right? No, I mean, I, I don't think that's, that's sort of a fair characterization. I think if you, if you go back through, the, through American history, uh, <coughs> debates uh, of the kind that Ilya and I had uh, started uh, not long after the founding. And you know, there, this tension between uh, you know, if, you, if you're an individual uh, set aside the issue of corporation. If you're an individual with uh, religious beliefs, does that make you, you know, I think as, as one Supreme Court case said it, does that make you a law unto it yourself and it allows you to sort of claim an exemption that no one else can from a general law? This, you know, the first cases involving uh, business owners, I think, uh, came out of Pennsylvania in uh, uh, the first years of the 19th century. So this 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 debate should business owners who have a religious view and and want to run their business in accord with that should they be entitled to exemptions uh, from generally neutrally applicable laws uh, that apply to all whatever their uh, their faith. That's been an issue that uh, that that has been confronted uh, throughout American history. Uh, you know, many of the kind of fun of the <clears throat> of the biggest cases that uh, are discussed deal with states. But again, you know, the the United States versus Lee case, which uh, you know was a huge precedent uh, in Hobby Lobby that Ilya and I uh, debated many different times, and that Justice Alito and Justice Ginsburg uh, debated many times was a 1982 case involving. Uh, a request for an exemption from the Social Security Act. Um, uh, 
So there, this issue is one that you see throughout American history, and it sometimes it happens on the federal level, sometimes it happens on the state level. Uh, you know, and I think you you know you can look at the body of 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 corpus of the Supreme Court dealing with the rights of corporations, and there are uh, an enormous number of cases, uh, many of them now quite obscure, but but kind of going back um, until the early days, you know. Of, of the nation, uh, some of them, you know, some of them, many of them deal with uh, action on the state level because the states, uh, for, uh, because the framers didn't want to say, didn't want to give the government, the federal government, the power to charter corporations, states did a lot of the work and so a lot of the uh, early cases, uh, so the, you know, the one of the earliest famous cases, the Dartmouth College case uh, involves uh, uh, state regulation of, of Dartmouth's uh, 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 charter and a claim that, that uh, I believe it was New Hampshire violated the Constitution uh, because they violated uh, Article 1, Sections 10, uh, protection against impairment of the obligations of contracts. So there have been cases over and over. And, you know, um, you know it, it is... You know, it, it's a mark of how big Hobby Lobby is that this is sort of the court is speaking on this issue um, for the first time. And it's not uh, a constitutional case, but you read, you know, uh, Ilya should be happy with this. Justice Alito says many of the things that, that Ilya said and in some ways sets it in, in, in sort of a, a, a constitutional framework. So I think just saying, well, this is statutory um, sort of doesn't, do justice to what is kind of a fundamental debate kind of on the court, and that, and that is tracked in our book. So, Randy, the, uh, the, essentially, David is arguing that the, uh, the Obama legislation, by virtue of being federal, was the anomaly in the great history, historical sweep. But these issues came up so much more often at the state level under the police power. Right. Well, I... I wasn't making quite the argument that you no. attributed to me, so uh, I would let you defend yourself uh, from <laughs> David's response. But I will say that, of course, things did change at the, with the passage of the 14th Amendment that uh, gave federal courts for the first time jurisdiction to protect the liberties of the people from state governments prior to that. And at the founding, this would not have been a federal issue, and it became a federal issue only after that. Um, and the courts were actually very slow in uh, using the 14th Amendment, as they should have been using it, um, uh, to protect individual liberties after the setback uh, provided by the Slaughterhouse cases and the Crookshank case, which started to gut the 14th Amendment and only started, uh, did they, in the 20th century, they start coming back. The first, the first time the Supreme Court uh, uh, used the um, First Amendment, freedom of speech, to invalidate a, a federal law um, uh, was in 1965. Uh, Lamont versus Postmaster General. So this was very late developing. It's not surprising um, that you wouldn't have a lot of early precedent uh, like that. No. Okay. Let me, let me just say, I mean, so, uh, you know, we have a different take on the original meaning of the Commerce Clause uh, with Randy. We filed a brief uh, uh, in, in the healthcare case on behalf of state legislatures, and we made an argument that's rooted in, in, in the Constitution's text and history. He, he would disagree. I just wanted to mention it. We're not going to sort of rehearse that now because uh, that would take the next. Uh, you know, we would need another hour and a half just to just to do that. But 
Well, I guess I should also add and clarify my earlier points. We never made an original, uh, an originalism challenge. Our challenge to the Affordable Care Act was never based on the original meaning of the Constitution. That was just out of the question. We couldn't possibly argue that and win. We were making an argument based on existing precedent that this was a novel and unprecedented exercise of federal power that could not be justified uh, because there was no limiting principle on it. And to, just, uh, to uphold this act, uh, would be to basically give Congress a police power, which the court has said the Congress doesn't have. So we were not making an originalist argument. Today I'm making an argument. Today I'm making the claim that the whole Affordable Care Act would violate the original meaning of the Constitution, and if the original meaning was respected, you wouldn't have to have to reach the First Amendment question of free exercise. Okay, now let's turn to you folks and um, wait for the microphone to come. Uh, tell us uh, your name and any affiliation you may have. And I'm going to direct one side up uh, uh, while you're asking the question and sending the microphone to the next. So keep your hands up. Uh, let's start right here uh, and then right there. Hi. Uh Andrew Kloster with the, the Heritage Foundation. So I really appreciated this talk. It was very helpful. Um, and I have the book as well. So um, so quick comment and then a quick question. The comment is, uh, you know, corporations can't pray. I think that that's perhaps an impoverished view of prayer. I'd commend you to the medieval, you know, laborare, estorare, to work is to pray. So there's that. But my question is, um, uh, you know, um, Mr. Gans said, you know, uh, Walmart couldn't possibly be. It was, it was a, you know, and Hobby Lobby is clearly a secular corporation. And, and Ilya said, you know, um, Fortune 500 companies, I, I think it'd be very difficult for them to show that they're exercising religion. So my question is, can, can you two, I guess you're grasping at trying to get a decision procedure perhaps, which is maybe pure, which sets values aside, which we can determine uh, when a corporation is is exercising religion. Set aside the question of whether it's religion or not, but when did they get together and how many people does it take? What does it take to be considered closely held? Can you can you kind of get to that to that issue? Uh, sure. Um, I, you know, the court didn't draw a line. Uh, if I was a lawyer advising a company that was organized along certain religious lines, I would say, if you don't have a mission statement, get one. I would say, you know, make clear what your policies are. Um, you know, the, the, the Greens didn't just invent this opposition to these particular um, uh, uh, methods of, of birth control uh, once Obamacare was passed. Uh, and they, I think they, nobody disputed that, that they didn't manufacture some objection uh, pursuant to, uh, to litigation. So those are the sorts of things that I think uh, courts will look to. They're not, they're not going to look at evaluate some theological dispute about whether you're you know, correct in your religious interpretation, but they will look at whether you're, uh, you have a sincerely held religious belief and whether indeed the government action has a substantial burden uh, on it. Uh, hi, Trevor Burst from the Cato Institute. I have two questions for David. Right here, sorry. Um, one is you talked about corporation at the founding and, I, and the meaning of the term and what the founders thought about it. I wonder how you rectify that with the fact that there were no general incorporation statutes in any state until 1795, and really until the 1850s, incorporation meant something entirely different, more like a state monopoly. And then second question is we said that the giving, Hobby Lobby was denying a federal right to the women employees. Could you describe what that federal right is and what it looks like after it gets through HHS and whether or not it has to go through your employer or not? I mean, so, 
so on the first question, if you look at if you look at the sweep of American history, obviously there's a big there is a there is a fundamental change in uh, in both how cor in what corporations do and how they're regulated, um, and that you know that that changes kind of over time. I mean, I think what doesn't change is kind of this fundamental idea that is you know that is reflected in uh, in the founding debates that uh, there is a difference between corporations and and we the people and because corporations receive special privileges now they uh, what those special privileges might be might be different in a monopoly setting but even under a general incorporation law corporations receive special privileges uh, that you know that individual Americans can't receive that's the defining aspect of a corporation. And because of that, the government has, uh, has a broader latitude to regulate corporations uh, than it does uh, individuals. I think that's, that's the kind of, that's the principle that's reflected in the text and history. So even though, uh, you know, we have general incorporation laws as opposed to a charter saying, you know, you corporation shall, shall is chartered to do such and such. I think that doesn't change the fundamental principle that the government kind of retains uh, authority to ensure that corporations don't abuse those special privileges, and that and that gives it a, a special uh, regulatory latitude. Uh, that you know, that's certainly clearer under state law, which you know states have plenary power uh, to uh, to regulate. Uh, Corporations, especially those they charter, on the federal level, um, you know, it's complicated by uh, its interaction with the scope of, of Congress's uh, uh, federal powers, which Randy have said are broad, but 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 there are limits to them. So that uh, uh, I think that comes in. But so that so my general take is, it doesn't matter that the way corporations that there's been a move toward general incorporation, the principle holds. Wait, I thought there was a, there was a, I mean, so, I mean, the right, the right as I, as I understand it, that is, you know, that was reflected in uh, the HHS regulations was uh, uh, employers do have to provide, um, <clears throat> and certainly this still holds as to, uh, Oh, uh, public corporations, you, as part of, if you have a, an employee-sponsored health plan, you have to cover the full range of contraceptives. Um, uh, you know, including, uh, as well as other things that the regulations provide for, um, you know, they're now, uh, they're now new regulations uh, that deal with, I think, since the Hobby Lobby decision that deal with, um, both the Hobby Lobby situation as well as uh, as well as uh, sort of the Little Sisters uh, example, and those are those are under challenge. But I mean, I think the right is sort of the same one uh, that the court talks about. Okay, I'm right here. I'm Jeff Lynn, uh, professor in the School of Business at George Washington University. The rather loose use of the word corporation is what bothers me because corporations have changed dramatically. And Hobby Lobby is clearly a closely held corporation when most of our significant corporations have a significant split between management and ownership. 
So my question to all three of you, uh, maybe just the two of you, uh, based on this, will we see a move now by large corporations rather than closely held public corporations uh, asking for exemption from a variety of uh, regulations or laws? Well, I don't know why they would. I mean, if they suddenly gain religion, I mean, if it's sincere, it's sincere. If it's not, then it, it doesn't count. And, you know, this is, a, this is a RIFRA challenge. And so, you know, I don't know if they, they're going to make some sort of religious objection to, you know, an environmental or a regulation or Dodd-Frank or something. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that would work. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what sort of incentives uh, really this sets up for uh, corporations who are public to go private or to become closely held. Uh, indeed, um, you know, if, if the main motive of most uh, companies, especially the big public ones, is to make money, uh, you know, the Greens, by hewing to this religious mission, uh, are, are detracting from that. So, you know, again, if, if somebody wants to assert religious beliefs, then that'll be treated according to this, uh, this the, the statutory rubric. Uh, in the public company setting, it would be very hard to do, not impossible, but uh, again, as long as it was clear to all investors and all of the stakeholders were aligned, I suppose, uh, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility for some future company to be set up this way. It'd be hard for, you know, a, a Microsoft or an Exxon or something to unwind itself and add this religious mission in, in order to eventually make some sort of religious objection. It, it, it's kind of uh, hard to fathom. Well, there, there would be no objection in, in principle between closely held and, uh, and non-closely held corporations. I mean, you could... Uh, just look to the articles of incorporation, the bylaws, and so forth, and see uh, what the the corporate owners want to do. And if they uh, wish to raise uh, a religious objection, seems to me that it would be hard. The court would be hard pressed to draw it, a principled line between closely held and not closely held corporations. Yeah, uh, I was actually going to sort of make the point, Roger, just that if you look at kind of Justice Alito's reasoning. You know, it, it applies to both uh, closely held corporations, some of which are quite big as well as public ones. You know, the thing that was grappled with uh, at oral argument, some in the opinion is kind of in what circumstance will, would shareholders say we have a, a religious point of view? Um, and, and, and the court sort of has left us with kind of a broad view of of the rights of corporations that I think would encompass the public corporation, but there's kind of this technical question, will there be a public corporation that say, this is our religious view? I mean, I think, I remember in, in the run-up there was sort of talk about, well, JetBlue kind of makes arguments in sort of religious terms, but we're still kind of waiting to see. But I think, you know, in the, in the landscape of religious exemptions that's opened up, this is one area that, that you know, we need to watch out and see you know, will there be, uh, Alito sort of says, we don't, we doubt it, but perhaps, perhaps we'll see these claims in the future and we'll have to watch out and see if they succeed or not. Okay, up here. Uh, yeah, Jim Duhall, I'm unaffiliated. Uh, this question with some background is, is uh, directed to David. Uh, you, as I understand it, uh, objected to the concept corporation, uh, being able to exercise religion. Uh, and, and Ilya raised the example of a, a, a kosher butcher who incorporates, and that example came up in the Supreme Court's oral argument as well. And I want to expand that example. 
Oops. Oh, oh. Is it okay? Uh, decides to put all of its ventures, it, its business ventures, in a single corporation. So it's a general purpose corporation. One percent of the business is the kosher butchering. Uh, is the kosher butchering deprived of all uh, uh, protection under RIFRA and protections because it's part of a general commercial corporation? We can put that to a rabbinical court if we. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, one thing that I, that I'll, you know, I mean, I, I'm not sure I have kind of a specific answer because for RIFRA, I want to know kind of what's the regulation they're being subject to, what is their claim for an exemption, um, or what? Well, I, I know, but so, but I need sort of some specifics to kind of speak to it. I will say, in the past, you know, in many cases. Uh, customers uh, who are unquestionably individuals who have their own rights to assert uh, have uh, have come into court and said, "Look, if you if you put in place this restriction on uh, on a kosher establishment, it affects my ability to exercise my religion, and I get to challenge it." And you know, I think that's what happened in in some of the cases that that came up to the Supreme Court in in the 1960s. So. I think there are ways these, case, these cases, in the Coach Birch example, uh, may make it to court anyways. Sir. Um, my name is Nick Little. I'm with the Center for Inquiry, which I believe was the only organization that opposed RIFRA from day one and saw all these problems coming down the line. Um, we've had, in the hour and a half that we've had here, we've had a lot of mention. In fact, I lost count of the number of mentions of the free exercise clause. There hasn't been a single mention of its equally important brother, the Establishment Clause. And when we look at it, this application of RIFRA is where RIFRA becomes fundamentally unconstitutional. Because RIFRA initially was about turning around, for example, and saying, as a church, if you want to take a hallucinogenic tea, and the government says no, there's no one else harmed if we turn around and allow you to do this. The difference here on where it becomes unconstitutional is it's turning around and saying, the right of an employee is now subject to the religious beliefs of an employer. And because the employee doesn't share those beliefs, we are going to prioritize and use RIFRA and use the government to prioritize the beliefs of the corporation over the rights of the employee. How is that not a, a categorical violation of the Establishment Clause? Well, it's not prioritizing the beliefs of the employer or the employee. It's saying if there are alternate ways of accomplishing the same goal, the employee, meaning, gets the exact same uh, you know, right fulfilled or, or, or what have you um, through a different way, the government accomplishes through a different way, then uh, you have to yield to the religious uh, objection. So it's not a situation of um, you know, anyone who is employed here you know, cannot use a particular contraceptive or, or we won't hire women or we won't hire women of childbearing age or we won't hire women of childbearing age who uh, have sexual relations outside of marriage or, or, or anything like that. You know, that would be a different case 
articulate a different way. I thought your question would be, why isn't RIFRA unconstitutional because it privileges religion over something else, which is a much broader, more interesting question. You know, the, the, the question you asked is very easy to answer because, again, no right is being infringed. There's other way of accomplishing it. But, but why isn't, uh, uh, why, why isn't RIFRA unconstitutional for, for that ground? Well, because the Constitution uh, 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 recognizes uh, rights to religion. It's one of your natural rights. I would argue that freedom of conscience is protected, of, of non-religious conscience is protected by the First Amendment as well uh, in, in, in various ways. Um, so I, you know, I, it, our constitutional order presupposes um, a potential viol because of the, the American history and, and, and the, the milieu out of which the framers came, uh, presupposes you know, they were concerned about government infringements on religious practice, minority practice, what have you, uh, and so they wrote in the free exercise clause. But as long as the government itself isn't imposing some sort of religion, it can certainly say that religious believers have certain rights to be able to exercise their, their, their beliefs. Randy, the question poses um, the question, isn't this a case of conflicting rights? Is that the way you see it? Uh, no, because I, I don't think oh, the. I thought so. I, because I, 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 I don't think that the uh, the establishment clause was about rights at all. It was a uh, it was a no power to the federal government to interfere with state establishments, which were currently in existence and didn't end in this country until the 1830s. Um, uh, and so, it not being about rights at all, being about no federal power to establish a national religion. Um, uh, it, it didn't. It, it isn't easy. It isn't any more uh, coherently incorporated into the Fourteenth Amendment, if you even want to use the rubric of incorporation, than the Tenth Amendment is. The Tenth Amendment is another power restricting a, a federal power restricting provision, and nobody thinks that the Fourteenth Amendment somehow applies the Tenth Amendment to the states. And uh, and neither, I think, uh, would this no power in the federal government be applied to the states via the, four, the, the uh, due process clause or the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. That's not the law uh, that we have. That's not the constitutional law or doctrine that we have um, ever since the uh, Everson case. Uh, but that was a very late developing idea um, that uh, somehow there's an establishment clause as a right as well or an individual right that could somehow be applied to the states via the 14th Amendment. So I think this is a, if we go back to the original meaning, there really isn't such a big conflict uh, between the Establishment Clause and the uh, Free Exercise Clause. Sir. Hi, uh, Peter Montgomery at People for the American Way. I was wondering if you could just address briefly the um, religious claims made against uh, non-discrimination protections on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity which was not at issue in Hobby Lobby, but uh, is certainly at issue with a lot of state referrals and may become more of a federal issue if the Supreme Court uh, makes a constitutional ruling on marriage equality. I think that's a question for you, Elia. Yeah. Um, well, it depends what kind of anti-discrimination law you're talking about. If it's employment anti-discrimination, I, I mentioned that. I, I, I think... Uh, um, there is no way to, again, assuming the constitutionality of the, of the employment discrimination law in the first place, there's no way to achieve the goal of uh, you know, banning prohibition based on the protected class than to ban that particular uh, employment practice. In terms of serving customers, that's a little different um, uh, in the sense that, um, for example, the, the, the New Mexico wedding photographer who 
had gay clients but didn't want to work a gay commitment ceremony. Uh, and New Mexico has a RIFRA and a state mini RIFRA, but despite that, uh, still the wedding photographer was fined for, for not being willing to commit the same sex, uh, willing to work the, the same sex commitment ceremony, uh, which is problematic, I think, because uh, there are, you know, a hundred other photographers in the Albuquerque area that, that could have achieved the same goal. It's not a situation like, you know, Jim Crow, where state supported segregation prevented black travelers from being able to find a hotel room or a restaurant or, or, or something like that. And so you had to break the, the monopoly power. Uh, or the, the Oregon Baker or the Idaho Chapel, all of these kind of private businesses um, that, uh, again, given that there are uh, lots of alternatives, commercial alternatives, and the only reason to demand that they, they serve the, 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 the gay marriage is to kind of promote some sort of test case uh, and, and bring down the, the, larger, uh, the larger edifice. So these are uh, kind of complicated issues, but, but ultimately I think you can enhance liberty by um, you know, looking at whether um, uh, someone's rights are indeed being uh, uh, impinged by the government, say, you know, the, the, I think, uh, you know, I, I was one of the few people, and Cato's one of the few organizations that, uh, you know, speaks out both for marriage equality, well, I personally would rather government not be in marriage in the first place, but if it does have these licenses, it has to give them to everyone, uh, but at the same time, if you're a private business and you object to working a uh, a, a, a gay marriage for religious or, or any other reason for that matter, I, th I think you should be able to. Randy? Yeah, I just wanted to make a separate point that I, I, I maybe I should have made earlier. Um, we hear a lot, a lot about how people's view of the Constitution just sort of happens to match up with their policy preferences, and isn't that convenient? Uh, I do think that we see a lot of that on the left, frankly. People who believe in living constitution tend to, their living constitution tends to match almost exactly uh, with how they think uh, every result ought to come out. Uh, in this particular case, I know uh, I speak for Ilya as well because he says so in the book, um, I don't share Hobby Lobby's uh, uh, religious objections to uh, contraceptives. I think contraceptives are perfectly okay. Um, uh, but I do think that uh, they have a free exercise right to uh, not be implicated in this practice that they think is immoral, but I don't share that particular view of theirs. And with respect to the Establishment Clause, and this is what made me think about it, um, I strongly support the separation of church and state, and I'm not religious myself, and yet I think that uh, the original meaning of the Establishment Clause isn't, um, uh, doesn't establish that proposition to that extent. I, I just, so this is where I think the Constitution doesn't line up uh, necessarily with my own view of what I think uh, uh, government should do with respect to religion, but I do think it is what the Constitution says, and that's the opinion I was giving. If I'm not mistaken, and just a point of clarification, the um, objection of Hobby Lobby was not to uh, contraceptives generally, but to the four abortifacients. Exactly. No. Right. Uh, okay. Yes, sir. Sir, uh, my question is for Professor Burnett. Uh, I want you to clarify a little bit about the Congress not having the authority to pass the Obamacare. Thank you. There's a little softball for you, Randy. <laughs> well, it's also such an easy question uh, to explain. Uh, what part uh, Congress of has limited and enumerated powers, one of which is the power to regulate commerce among the several states, and commerce among the several states is about the, the transfer and sale and movement of things and people from one place to another. Um, and that's not what Obamacare is regulating. Obamacare is regulating both the sale of insurance, which is not commerce under this meaning, and also regulating uh, the local uh, provision of health care services, which are also not commerce. Uh, 
commerce under this meaning, and so it's not within commerce's, Congress's power to regulate almost any of this. Um, uh, and so that's why it's outside of their power uh, to do it. Uh, it might be within the state's power to regulate this uh, because states have general powers uh, that are more powers that are more general uh, than Congress does. But this is the reason why Congress really has no business in this field whatsoever. And there, and then if we were to respect that limit, we wouldn't be having this debate about interference with individual rights because it's only when Congress has the power to do pretty much anything it wants that all of a sudden all the individual rights that could be infringed come to the fore. Uh, and that just shows why the structural constraints on the power of Congress um, and the federal government generally is itself a protection of individual rights that does not then require you to formulate what rights we have and let judges empower, uh, empower judges to then protect them. Sir. Good afternoon, my name is Todd Wiggins. This would be for Professor Barnett. Can you speak to the original intent of the phrase, in God we trust, and in its usage on our um, currency, et cetera, and do you feel that it should be updated or should we continue with the tradition? Um, well, I think that uh, the, not so much the original intent, but the original meaning of in God we trust is likely that they trusted God. So that would be how I would uh, interpret the meaning of that. Um, that's what it seems like. I mean, unless there's some evidence that that's not what it meant, I would sort of go with the obvious meaning of it. Um, but if what you're asking about is whether that's somehow a violation of the establishment uh, uh, prohibition on the federal government, is I just don't see how that would be. I mean, I think that the idea of setting up a national religion, uh, what, was, what was called an establishment of religion had certain characteristics. States had establishments of a religion. That's, they were in existence at the time of the founding. Um, and what, what, the, what the way the Establishment Clause is worded is it says, Congress shall make no law with respect to an establishment of religion. That basically says you may not establish a religion and you may not disestablish a religion. You may not make any law with respect to the establishment of religion. That's what the clause says. Um, and that's what it was, um, meant, it was thought to mean. Um, in the early years of the country, and none of the states that had established religions objected um, uh, to the Establishment Clause, in the, and they all ratified the First Amendment that had this in it. Um, it and then the question is, does the 14th Amendment change this somehow, such that it now creates an individual right against states who had, you know, because really it's the states that are doing this sort of thing, and I think the 14th Amendment did not change that because it, the, 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 this aspect of the 14th Amendment, First Amendment was not about a personal privileges or immunity of citizens of the United States. In fact, establishment churches continued until 1836 when Massachusetts was the last. Uh, sir. Yeah. Uh, no uh, you're, <clears throat> Bill Bushka, do ask, do tell .com. Um, just a practical concern when, and I know people on the left will not like to hear this, but when you go to work for a place, you know, generally you want to share some of the same values of the place you work. And if you're, if there's antagonism in your own values versus the company you're going to work for, it's probably in a practical sense, a good idea not to work there to begin with. That's how I've always felt. You know, I've seen gay men working for Christian schools that never made any sense to me that you would even want, want to work there. I had a situation back in the 90s where I transferred because I didn't want to work in an area that sold to the military when there was a ban against gays in the military. <coughs> so I've dealt with some, and then I've turned down some other things when I retired because, you know, I didn't 
the values that they had didn't match mine and my saying no probably made them wonder what was wrong. I just think that somehow we have to think about why people believe the things that they do as well as simply look at the constitutional legalism as a practical question. We understand why people hold the beliefs they do and work through that more than we do. I, I work Someone for, I work turn for, that into a legal question? I work for a Jesuit institution, um, and uh, I think that I, should, I shouldn't go to work for a Jesuit institution if I'm going to be deeply offended by the Jesuit mission. Um, I, I'm actually not in agreement with some of my Jewish colleagues' interpretation of the Jesuit mission, um, but uh, I, I, I'm, I have no problem with the Jesuit mission itself. Uh, and uh, by the same token, I have a lot more qualms about working for a state university than I would for a Jesuit in, uh, university, but that's a decision that I have to make uh, when I decide to go to work for a company or not. You mean you don't want to be paid with money that is fairly dripping with the taxpayer's blood? <laughs> Well, I, I, I do have to admit that I was a criminal prosecutor in Chicago, uh, and I, got, I was paid such money to protect the public uh, from the bad guys. <laughs> Let's take uh, one last question right here before we break for lunch. It's sort of symbolic that, uh, that the moderator has the last name of Pylon, and one of the jurists is Randy. But uh, there are some other points that are mis misunderstood, and that is the uh, the purchase of or the obtaining of contraceptives is not free. It's factored into the cost of the health insurance. Uh, if you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail, but not if you don't pay your hospital or doctor's bills. And the other point is that was omitted from the Affordable Care Act was the huge costs of medications in the United States versus the costs of medications in Canada and Western Europe or England. Uh, Sandra Fluke uh, was a uh, celebre about contraceptives, but uh, I believe her contraceptives were obtained through Glaxo, which is a British company. Well, as luck would have it, I wrote a long policy analysis on the reimportation of drugs, explaining why it is that you have the disparity in pharmaceuticals between what we pay here and what is paid in other price-controlled countries. In any event, does either or any of you wish to address that issue? Uh, the only thing I will say is that it, it, contraceptives are not a very good fit within uh, insurance. Insurance is an insurance against risks of things happening that you you know, that you hope won't happen, but then they might happen, and it's like getting sick. You know, you, somewhat foreseeable that you'll get sick, but you hope you don't, and you get an insurance in case you do. Uh, uh, contraceptives are more a consumer good, um, and it would be, and, and generally speaking, it's not the kind of thing that really is something one insures against. It, it, by, by mandating contraceptive coverage, which is now a federal mandate, um, you're essentially mandating a redistribution of income from people who don't use contraceptives to people who do use contraceptives. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of redistribution that happens in the country as a result of federal law, but I think calling it insurance is a misnomer. It's, it, it, and, and the euphemism that's used to cover this is social insurance. And well, as soon as you put the term social in front of another term, it changes the basic meaning of the term that it's in front of. And so it's no longer insurance. It's a redistribution scheme. Um, and so it, 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 but that's something that Obamacare gave us. And this goes back to Roger's earlier point. Until Obamacare was passed and it started having all these mandates, that's what puts us into the, into the, into the soup here, where we're trying to figure out, well, you know, uh, what are we going to do with that, and how does that intersect with our individual rights, the other rights that we have? Um, and this is a good example of that. 
Yes, it's like... I, actually, uh, can I just... I mean, I, I don't... I sort of disagree with that. I think it's, it's not social. It's preventative care. This is the, you know, the reason why Congress wanted uh, preventative care covered is, the, is I think insurance companies traditionally had, well, you know, we're insuring against risk, but that left uh, things that American people need uh, to stay healthy uncovered. And the idea behind uh, this particular regulation uh, was, was to ensure uh, preventative care, to ensure that, that women could, afford, could access the full range of contraceptives, including uh, you know, some of the most effective ones, which are extremely costly and without that insurance could not be obtained. And to me, that's the classic reason for insurance. So, so I, I don't think this is some kind of newfangled kind of insurance. It's you know, sort of Congress uh, using its authority. And I think, I mean, here it's regulating kind of the terms and conditions of, of employment, which kind of seems kind of more classically commerce. And it's doing it to ensure that, that women have access to a full range of contraceptives. And I think the court should have recognized. It's an old-fangled welfare scheme, and it's just been disguised as insurance. But, yeah. you know, there's lots of welfare schemes we have. It's, there's nothing new about having a welfare scheme, but that's what it is, and it's just been gussied up uh, under the rubric of insurance, and, and so that there doesn't have to be a, a line item on the budget this in is, which this uh, redistribution is taking This place. is about our health insurance system, our health system more broadly. I mean, when you, when you uh, get your oil changed, you don't file a claim with your auto insurance company. When you, uh, you know, get a minor fender Bender. You look at what your deductible is, what your plan is. You know, do you have a catastrophic care for your car policy, etc.? And you make a, a wise decision. Insurance doesn't help you pay prepay for expensive things or something like that. It it helps you, uh, as as uh, Randy said, cover uh, risks uh, that would otherwise be you don't know when they're coming and they could bankrupt you. And it kind of smooths out your 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 risk portfolio, as it were. And since we don't have a, a real market for, for health care and it just keeps being distorted in other ways, this is just one other way, not just of uh, redistributing from one section, one, one kind of uh, category of people to another, uh, but also to change, uh, you know, further pervert the idea of insurance into something that's kind of a, a public utility scheme. All right. Uh, with Let's uh, draw this to a conclusion. <laughs> Let me conclude, however... Uh, by, again, recommending this little book. It has got a wealth of uh, ideas and information about this um, matter, and you'll uh, get a much fuller and um, systematic uh, accounting of these issues in that book. Uh, let's uh, break for lunch, but let's have... We'll be joining... Uh, we'll be going up to the second floor, the George M. Yeager Conference Center for lunch. But before we do, a warm round of applause for our speakers today.